I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash spoken today. Hey, Dave. Yeah, Randy. Since we founded Bombas, we've always said our socks, underwear, and T-shirts are super soft. Any new ideas? Maybe sublimely soft. Or disgustingly cozy. Wait, what? I got it. Bombas. Absurdly comfortable essentials for yourself and for those facing homelessness. Because one purchased equals one donated. Wow, did we just write an ad? Yes. Bombus. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombus.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is plush care. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Welcome to the Great Coaches Podcast. To me... Being perfect is not about that scoreboard out there. This is a chance of a lifetime. When you can understand the person, you can then work towards a common goal. We are all on the same team. Now you roll and do it to the best of your ability. Focus on the fundamentals. We've gone over time and time again. Your defense has got to be better. Leave no doubt tonight. Great moments are born from great opportunity. Hello and welcome to the Great Coaches Podcast, where we believe that there is no algorithm for leadership, and so we interview great sports coaches from around the world to try and find ideas to help all of us be better leaders. Our great coach on this episode is Mike Hessen. Mike is a New Zealand cricket coach. He started his coaching career in his early 20s while playing in the UK. From there, he progressed through assistant coaching positions before accepting the role as Argentina's head coach in 2003. He returned to New Zealand and became head coach of Otago, leading them to the 2008 One Day Trophy and the 2009 T20 Championship. In 2011, he took on the job of the head coach of Kenya before being appointed the head coach of the New Zealand national team, the Black Caps, in 2012. He went on to take them from a one-day international ranking of 8th to number 2 in the world by the time he left the role in 2018. He finished his tenure as one of the most successful cricket coaches in the nation's history, with highlights including a record-breaking 13-game winning streak. He's gone on to coach the Kings in the IPL and Islamabad United in the Pakistan Super Some of the highlights from the interview with Mike were his view on being comfortable with silence and not feeling like you always have to fill it as a coach with information, but instead using it as a space to observe and gather information so you can be helpful later on. The way he uses questions to help lead people, as he believes that the majority of the times a player has the answer, they just haven't been asked the right question, and the importance of authenticity, as in his words, 
if I want my players to believe in me and trust me and have a relationship with me, they need to know that it's actually me rather than me trying to be somebody else. And just before we go to the interview, today's podcast is brought to you by the Macquarie University Business School's MBA program. Designed to empower, challenge and transform, the Macquarie MBA gives you the business skills and knowledge you need to succeed in an evolving global economy. The program bridges the gap between theory and real-world application, bringing together world-leading professors, executives and industry partners to teach you how business can be used for good. I have just started working with the team at Macquarie on some projects and can attest to the quality of the people and material. To find out more, search for Macquarie University Business School's MBA. And now, please enjoy our interview with Mike Hessen. You're listening to The Great Coaches Podcast. Mike Hessen, good morning and welcome to The Great Coaches Podcast. Morning, Paul. How are you? I'm good. I'm good. I'm looking at that amazing view behind you. I'm probably holding you from a nice walk along the water, so I'll try and make it interesting for you today. Sounds good. Look forward to it. Mike, probably the first question I always ask everybody is, where are you in the world and what have you been doing so far today? Yeah, so I'm in New Zealand at the moment, uh, which is where my home is. So, um, yeah, I'm lucky enough to live relatively close to the water. You can probably see that. It's a pretty, pretty rough day today, so... Uh, yeah, just about to take the dogs for a walk, or will do after I do this. Kids drop the kids off at school, um, and also probably I'm, I'm also preparing for a um, a Pakistan Super League draft. So had to do a little bit of work on that early this morning. So that's uh, that sort of tied me up, catching up with uh, the events overnight. Mike, thanks for carving out a little bit of time then to talk with us before you get into your day. And perhaps let's start there. Let's start with the great international experience you've had. You've coached in India, you've coached in Pakistan, you've travelled all over the world with the New Zealand cricket team, and I'm sure through those journeys you've seen some really good coaches uh, up close. And I'm just curious, what do you think the great ones do differently that sets them apart? I think they're really authentic. So they don't try and be anybody other than themselves. Um, And I think that as a developing coach, often you, you try and... You, you try and, I guess, be malleable in terms of see a good coach and think, oh, I want to be like that. And I think all the good ones maybe have been through that, but ultimately go, hang on, if if I want my players to to believe in me and trust me and, and have a relationship with me, they need to know that it's actually me rather than me trying to be somebody else. So I guess that's what I see. I, I see people that are really true and committed to, to their own values and, and why they're a coach. Um and they're also really good at building relationships with a variety of players. So they don't just have one method. You know, they're actually able to to adapt their own style to to a multitude of different people. I think what's interesting is my your mother was a management consultant, which I imagine would have been rather a, a new type of role. But I'm wondering how she's gone on to shape your approach to leadership. Yeah, look, I think with um with my mother, like we, you know, followed her around a little bit with her work. Um, and I, I guess the thing with mum, she was very, she was very driven. It's probably one thing. So in terms of, you know, she was highly successful because she was, she was able to sort of keep a really single focus. Um, but she was also able to engage many people in her business. So it was about, I guess that's probably the, 
the art of being truly empathetic is that you you enter negotiations or you work with a whole heap of people and you realize that everybody in that relationship has to see benefit in it for it to work so i think that's part of coaching too is that you you know you might have board members you might have ceos you might have players that have just joined the squad you might have a captain whatever it is and all of those people have to be able to believe in in the journey that you want to take them on and and i think that's that's one of the things that um, as a, I guess, you know, my mother as a, a burgeoning C, um, you know, consultant, I guess, management consultant, but she probably led the way. And she was also very much one of the first women to be taking on those jobs. So she was fearless. Um, and that's probably something that, you know, took me to a lot of the different countries that I went to, which I could have easily stayed in New Zealand and, and I had a good job and I could have stayed in it. Or I took myself out of my comfort zone a bit and, and went to Argentina and, you know, had to learn Spanish and, and went to Kenya and, and had some challenges over there, but but learned a heck of a lot as well. So I guess it's that as well, is, is taking yourself out of your comfort zone, being relatively comfortable in that space um, and just, you know, finding a way to make it work, you know, rather than it being too tough, actually trying to navigate yourself to, a, to make that role successful. Well, I think uh, let's talk about being fearless and let's talk about the travel because – you start out as a coach quite young and you, you progress in various assistant roles, but the big infliction point comes in 2003 where you head over to Argentina, which is a, you know, a burgeoning, a burgeoning uh, cricket country. But what were you hoping to achieve through that experience? Well, I'd been, um, I'd been director of cricket for seven years at Otago. So I, and, and I did quite well. And I, I was, I guess I was forming a, um, I was forming some experience and I was forming a bit of a reputation for being a, a good director of cricket, but I wanted to be a head coach. And I sort of saw that if I wanted to stay in cricket, I, I could either do this job forever um, and get really good at it, or maybe do the same job at New Zealand cricket. But I wanted to test myself to go, well, okay, if I want to be a head coach, I can't really stay here because I always feel like if you stay in the same place, you, you're always viewed in a certain position um, and you, you're, you're seen as having a certain set of skills. Whereas I wanted to show that I had a bit more than that. And even though I'd coached teams to win tournaments like underage or A-level, um, I was probably still seen as in the role that I was in. So I thought, well, I need to go away and try and, you know, show that that I can be successful in a completely different place. Um, and I probably couldn't get any more different than Argentina. Um so I arrived in Buenos Aires. Um, it was a, an ICC appointment, which was a good thing. So there was a little bit of stability around that. Um, I knew, um, you know, I knew a guy that had that I'd coached um, or played with. Sorry, in the UK, um, it was the CEO over there. So he'd sort of made contact with me and said, "Hey, is this something you might be interested in?" Um, and you know, I knew it was a different language, but I kind of, I, I went into it a little bit eyes closed um, and sort of thought, no, let's just, let's take this on. It was a life experience. I'd only recently got married. Um, it was a chance for us to go over there and uh, yeah, said, learn a different language, completely different culture uh, and try and turn Argentina quickly around. I mean, we were, I don't think we'd won a game in the America's Cup. I think we were 0-42 or something like that. Um so we certainly hadn't looked to qualify, but it was, yeah, it was one of those things that, um, yeah, I wanted to give a go and I wanted to see if I could go into somewhere completely different and, you know, see what unfolded. 
Well, it did move you along. We'll get to to what happened next with your cricket career when you when you came came back to New Zealand. But I'd like to explore a quote I've got from you first, Mike. You say, "So if you can help build that environment where it's a learning environment, but not always a coaching environment, so that the subtle conversations that are happening all around us are probably the most valuable." It's a really to, it really caught my eye when I was reading it because there's lots in that that sentence. But I wanted to ask you about this idea of the subtle conversations. It really intrigued me. And I'm wondering if you could tell us more about those conversations and why you think they're so important. Yeah, you know, I think if you're working with a player and the player always feels like they're being coached or they're, you know, they always feel like they're, they're always a bit guarded. And you're never really going to get potentially to the to the, the 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 real true problem or the real true issue. And there are wholly different ways to to get there. And you know, some some players you work with, um, you know, like everything really structured and 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 sort of operate that way. But a lot of players won't open up unless they you actually genuinely have a relationship with them. Um, and like for example. You know, you, you might want to talk to somebody about, um, you know, their decision-making under pressure, for example. And if I was to, to to talk to a player who'd played international cricket forever, they knew there was a bit of a weakness there, and I was all of a sudden going down the, you know, the sports psych route or I was going down a route that was staring them and blindly in the face, yeah, you, you get a bit of a wall because they've, they've been through that before, whereas... If, if you find another interest because you, you actually know the person genuinely and you know that they're into football, for example, um, and they're a big fan of Ronaldo, whatever it is, and, and you you ask questions about, um, you know, how would how does Ronaldo operate in these situations? Have you read anything about him? You know, like you're, you're genuinely having a conversation about somebody else um, with with, I guess, a slight intention of, Making them opening their eyes to maybe that might be them as well, and you're you're so so you you know you you you're not only building the relationship, but you're also trying to answer questions by them using their own knowledge, um, and by just answering or asking the right questions, you know. And it's you know they are you know they are subtle conversations, and they are conversations that ultimately help that player and lead you in the direction you want to go without it being right in their face. Um, and, and sometimes it's more, you know, it's, it's not as structured as that. Like you're, you're genuinely just trying to find out about players and how they got to that position where they are because once you understand how they got to that point, you can try and work out where to intervene and where you might be able to add value. Whereas if you just come in with you know, I'm going to, I'm going to coach this person. I'm going to make them better without really knowing all the different facets of how they got to that point. Um, that might work with a 12 year old because they don't have that much baggage, but with a player that's been coached by 50 coaches throughout their career with 10 different teams, 20 different teams, how are you going to add value? Um, and I think you can only do that when you truly understand the athlete and you know, and you try and suck the answers out of them, you know, rather than, as I said, being too prescribed. So, yeah, that's I guess that's the way I would describe subtle conversations, but they, they take many different shapes. You said something fascinating there. You talked about 
asking the right questions. Is there any tips, routines, templates, or that you use to get those questions? Well, I think less is more. So, so before you, yeah, before you you ask the question that you really want the answer to, you you might have to ask a few others to gather information. Um, so you're you're not always you're not always asking you're not always asking questions because the answer is is important. It might just be um, to stimulate discussion. It might be um, because you need to gather enough information, as I said, to try and angle the right question in. Um, but it's just trying to find what I guess. Yeah, just just trying to understand the player. You know what? How might you be able to? How might you be able to sort of not angle, construct a question that's actually going to give you a useful answer and give the player a useful answer? Mm-hmm. Um, because ultimately, majority of the time, the player actually has the answer in them. They just haven't been asked the right question. So. Yeah, I don't think it's a template. I think you've you've got to be you've got to be pretty quick on your feet, <laughs> and you've also got to be genuine. As I said, you've kind of got to you know you've got to give as well as take. You know, so it's a it's a real it's a real conversation, and um, I think only at that point, once you've created that dialogue and that relationship, can you genuinely ask a maybe a difficult question. Um, whereas if you come straight away. You got no chance, or you'll just get a rote answer, um, which is not going to solve any problems or, or or assist the player in any way. So I don't know if I've really answered that, but I, I think it's you've got to be you've got to you've got to roll with it. You can't be too prescribed in terms of how you operate in that space. Well, I think the idea of asking a question that helps the athlete or the individual find their own answer is a really is a really yeah. powerful idea. Mike, could I can I just build on what you said there by playing back another quote to you. Sorry, I have found a couple of interesting ones. So they did no, no, no. a large part of the interview. But you actually say, it's and it's a wonderful quote, you say, to know when to intervene and when to say nothing is an art. Couldn't agree with you more. And I'm just a skill I wish I could develop a little bit better as well. But <laughs> when you talk to younger coaches or even older coaches about developing this skill, what do you tell them? Well, I, I guess you try and well, I try and make myself a little bit vulnerable in terms of look. I've been in this position before where I feel, as a coach, I'm supposed to know all of the answers. And often, when you are a coach, you, you when you have a relationship with a player or you're working with a player, you think that that player wants you to give them all the answers. Therefore, that's what you try and do. And sometimes you you either come up with a really rubbish answer or a really rubbish question or you, um, yeah, or you just talk way too much. And then, and then it just becomes a, yeah, it just becomes a sort of a nauseating thing. Oh, what's he going to come at me now? You know, I, I see that many coaches, you go, you go to a practice session and the time between instruction from a coach is so minimal because they, they see something and all of a sudden they now want to share that with the player. You know, whereas I guess as you become more comfortable with silence, 
you, you actually let the player try and work out a solution themselves and then ultimately over time if they don't, then you've had enough time to process what's the actual what's the actual real issue here and therefore you have either a real question or potentially you can give them a solution. Whereas if all you're doing is just intervening all the time, the player, firstly, the player just goes, yeah, I'm, I'm out. Um, and secondly, the information is useless. You know, so I think with the young coaches or, yeah, as you said, even older ones who are probably ingrained in their style, it's like, hey, the modern, the modern athlete, um, you know, is, is used to these little short sound bites. Um, so to make sure when you give them a sound bite, it's actually the right one. So, so think about it. Like, don't intervene, just stop for a start, then think about it, how you might say your message and then try and halve it. You know, in terms of so so you're you're narrowing down in your mind what the yeah, I guess where in the continuum you're going to intervene, and then exactly if you are, how are you going to add value? Rather than just tell them you've got all this information and by the way, you stuff that up, don't do it again. <laughs> you know? Um so I, I yeah, silence is good. And then I think you get respect from the player because you're only intervening or interrupting their practice when you've given them time to try and solve the problem themselves. And that's that as a player, I think that's where you gain more respect. You know, because as I said, these players have been given loads of instructions throughout their coaching, their playing career, and they only want to deal with coaches who can add value, not tell them the same things they've already heard before. Terrific. Um, it's a terrific insight, I think, into elite-level coaching. Uh, Mike, thank you. thank you for sharing that. I love this idea of respect being linked to silence. But let's continue the journey before we uh, get too more deep into silence because you had this great experience in Argentina. You come home, more time at Otago, and then in 2008 you're appointed head coach. And the team promptly, uh, they win the one-day trophy, uh, and then the following year they win the T20 championship. I think this was the first silverware in 20 years, so it was a, was a great achievement for a very proud cricketing club. But what were some of the first things you did when you got into the head coach role that helped drive that result? Yeah, I guess we had to um, we had to strip back what Otago was all about. Like, like Otago is the the smallest province by a long way. It's got there are only six provinces in, in New Zealand, and, and Otago has seven percent of the population. So obviously we're we're undermanned in terms of staff. So therefore how could we make Otago successful? And trying to build a huge amount of depth was never going to work. So it was like, okay, how could we identify players uh, from within the province that um, we could build the team around? So who are the ones that are incredibly passionate about Otago? Who are the the skillful ones, um, but maybe need some other people around them to try and join that all together? And then, once we did that, how could we, how could we try and um, get some 
good players and recruit some good players that actually want to come to Otago. So generally, we only got players to Otago who couldn't get in teams anywhere else. So they wanted a, an opportunity um, to play first-class cricket, and they saw this as the opportunity to do so. So I guess what I went is, I went, let's take that a step further. I only want to approach players who have ambition to not play for Otago, but have ambition to try and play for New Zealand. So a lot of the conversations around when you were talking to a player was like, yeah, okay, um, I know you want an opportunity and think you're good, but, you know, why you're actually coming down and and do you have the willingness and desire to, to not only come here, have a great time, play first-class cricket, but what do you need to do to play for New Zealand? And we're able to sort of identify, I guess, one or two in that space. And then once you're able to get one or two, after the first year when we, we made the playoffs for the first year and, 12 years or whatever. I mean, there's only a 16 competition, but we hadn't made the top four or whatever it was for 12 years or whatever. So we were, so all of a sudden we started to do well. We made the playoffs, we made the final. Um, okay, maybe this is quite a good place to come. And then it's about the culture you've created. So when other players are, either local players are being introduced, um, this is the way that we, we're going to play our game. Um, and this is what it means to play for Otago. These are the expectations we have. So we'd love you to come along, but, you know, you need to buy into this as well. Um, and it was it was very much around uh, playing for your mates, um, really, you know, putting your body on the line, um, enjoying the tough times. So enjoying the having to bowl into the wind, um, you know, having to scrap out a partnership when you're in trouble, like enjoying and embracing those things. Um, so. You know, we we did that, and then once we got a couple of players, we then got a couple more. So we we all of a sudden, um, you know, had had four players from outside the province come and join us, who were all had ambition, um, and they joined a group of local players who were desperate to try and turn Otago around. Um, and then uh, I was able to then approach players that left the province to say, "Hey, we're actually developing something." pretty cool here. You, you left for a reason because you wanted to play for a better team. You wanted to be around better players. Uh, we're actually a pretty good team now as well. And th- this is the way we, we operate. Um, and we had, we had Brendan McCullum um, come back. Uh, he had been playing in Canterbury, been living in Canterbury. He decided that, Hey, when, when I was actually playing golf with him and I said, mate, any chance you want to come back and, and play? Cause his brother was playing for Otago. Um, and and Brendan was like, oh, I was waiting for the, I was waiting for you to ask me. Um, so it was like, yeah, you know. And he was look, he was young. He was still very much away most of the time playing for New Zealand. Um, but it was like, it was a huge influence back into Otago of a player who had left. Um, he was one of our, you know, one of our bright lights who we were enjoying the fact he was playing for New Zealand and and had come from Otago, but he wasn't playing for us. So when he came back and played, he he had a pretty instant impact uh, because he had a real desire to, to make a difference. Um, and, and therefore, you know, for the next 10 years, even after I left, you know, we were a real powerhouse in New Zealand cricket because we, we built some real good foundations around what it meant to play for Otago, you know, what the expectations were. And, and it wasn't about just coming down and having a good time. It was about, um, you know, being real scrappers. Um, we were almost called a misfit 11, 
but I quite enjoyed that. You know, we we had people from all walks of life um, who came together for a common goal, and you know, we sort of embraced that. We embraced the fact we were a bit different. Um, we didn't try and turn them into the same people. We, we had a few guys who were a bit loose, to be honest. They were, you know, outside of the game. They were their decision making was probably not as sound as it could be, and and helping them develop into better individuals. Um, you know, finding girlfriends, buying a house, getting married, having kids, and sort of seeing them in that transition was something that I really got satisfaction from, seeing them when they were probably at their, you know, at their lowest, youngest, sort of loosest. Um, you know, it, it was really quite nice to see that transition. And, and I'm, you know, good friends with a lot of them now is that after they've grown up. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash spoken today. Well, you have a great run at Otago. Uh, I'm going to talk to you, ask you a few questions about uh, Brendan in a minute, but you have a great run at Otago and that leads you into the Black Caps job in 2012. And they then go on lightning strikes twice for you. The team go on this amazing run over the next six or seven years. When you think back on those early days leading the Black Caps, what, what comes to mind? It was tough. Um, it was tough to, because I guess it's taken over a team that had had, had very little success. Um, and when they had success, it was, you know, it was really celebrated in isolation. Um, so I guess in many ways it was quite easy because we were very much rock bottom. Um, I think we were eighth, eighth and ninth in the world in the, in the three different formats and there were only nine teams at that stage. Um, so we were, you know, we had the odd good day, um, but we were certainly not consistent in terms of how we operated. So I guess early on it was about observing um, because I'd, I'd come in, um, I'd, I'd been in, uh, I'd been away for a year, uh, been in Kenya, I'd came back and it was quite a relatively quick appointment. Um, and I, I pretty much went straight to India uh, to meet the team and the team had just come from the West Indies where they, they hadn't gone so well. Um, so it was about sort of observing the team for a while and getting to know what was working well, what wasn't, um, rather than coming in and all of a sudden, you know, being this guy who's going to turn all our fortunes around um, and change things. So 
a lot of it was about, I guess, introducing my values in terms of why I was in this role and what I thought was important and, and what I was looking for in the types of players I wanted. Um, and then I, I had to sit back and just and suck it and see for a bit and just see how guys went about things, what was working, as I said, what, what I could probably see was going to work um, and what I could see was probably not. Um, and after about a, you know three or four months, I made some... I made some pretty significant changes. Um, some were uh, were politically more correct than others, or seemed to be uh, easier than others. Um, I changed the captain, which was um, because I felt the team needed a different direction, uh, and that I probably realised was was going to be polarising, but probably not as polarising as as it was. Not within the team at all. Uh, the team were were absolutely fine, but more so outside the team um, and that applied a huge amount of pressure uh, to me because I'd made a, a big change relatively early on. Um, I didn't have a huge reputation. You know, I came in as this unknown guy who, who did well domestically, um, hadn't played cricket internationally, um, you know, came in and, and there was a lot of people, ex-players in particular, who were like, "Who, you know, who the heck is this guy? He's come in, he's he's got rid of our, our captain and he's replaced him supposedly with one of his mates, um, which was never the case at all. It was just a matter of what did I think this team needed to move forward because, you know, we were not only stagnating, we were, we were really inconsistent in terms of how we operated and we certainly weren't maximising our talent. And, and I see... I think at that point in time, as a coach, you either go, what's the easiest thing for me to do here, which is pretty much nothing, or what's going to be, the, what's going to make the biggest difference? Um, and that was where I, I thought, look, if I'm going to get fired from this job, which I probably will, um, I may as well do it my way. I may as well do it in a way that I think at least will give success. Whereas I could maybe do the job for two years you know, flutter no feathers, um, but lose the job and, and probably not have even tried to do it my way. Um, and that took quite a bit of bravery, really. Um, and then ultimately I just thought, stuff it. I thought, look, I came into this role because I wanted, I was passionate about New Zealand cricket. I wanted to try and make a difference. So I have to try and do it my way. Otherwise, I haven't given a decent crack. And I've listened to all of these people around me and I've probably worked out that a lot of them have agendas anyway. Um, and a lot of them have probably tried their way before and it hasn't worked clearly. So let's give my way a go. Um, so, you know, we, we pretty much hit rock bottom and it was actually a really easy conversation with the team. It was like, look, we've actually tried it your way. We've tried doing things in this fashion, um, but we're not going to anymore. We're going to strip it back. We're going to we're going to pick people that are going to play for the team first. We're going to try and remove this, um, you know, personal milestones that are holding us back. Um, we're we're being way too influenced by trying to be like Australia, who were a good team, you know, like you know, sledging, um, you know, getting caught up in things that aren't actually helping us. You know, they're detracting the way we want to play the game. So once again, stripping it back, what do the New Zealand public want? You know, they want fighters. They want people that 
even though they might not have the biggest names, but they're going to scrap every ball every day. Um, they're going to do it with some humility. So they're going to play for the team. So they're, you know, they're going to be really selfless in terms of how they operate. Um, they're going to be engaging with the public. Um, you know, they're, they're going to respect the game and the officials and things like that. So we really stripped it back in terms of, hey, this is actually what we want for our team moving forward. How are we going to get there? And then tried to put a, a bit of a pathway in terms of, you know, we can't just throw everyone out and start again. Um, we probably need to give people a chance to make those changes. Um, and then I guess using a quote um, that Steve Hansen uh, said to me, he was very much, you know, if you can't change the man, change the man. And, you know, it was it was one that stuck with me because you you always want to give somebody an opportunity to shift and to show that they've learned and they want to go down this path, but ultimately they need to make that decision. And, you know, if they don't, then you could keep going to the well over and over again, but ultimately you're not going to get any results. So, um, yeah, that was a that was a quote that probably stuck with me and um, I had to use a couple of times, you know, where there were some really talented players who um, weren't always playing for the team or didn't always have the best interests of the team at heart. And that's where I needed to make change. You mentioned Steve Hansen there, of course, the the legendary All Blacks coach. But when you describe that situation, it sounds challenging and difficult. Were there other mentors that you surround or critical friends that you surrounded yourself with that supported you through that process? Yes. No, so I was I was I was quite isolated, to be fair, because after I changed the captain, um, you know, I was I was almost public enemy number one by at least seventy percent of the public because I was seen to have, you know, gone down a different path. And, and it, was, it was actually not a great time. Um, and that's, I guess, the time where you do find out who are the people that you can rely on. Um, and I was really fortunate. I was part of a, um, a group called the Coach Accelerator Program. And I was in the inaugural group. Um, so it was set up by High Performance Sport New Zealand. And they basically, they basically paid us, a, you know, a, an annual fee um, to... to do a three-year course. And there was, you know, many people that applied, but there was six of us that got selected. And it was so Steve Hansen, uh, myself, a guy called Tom Wilmot, who was the the head of snowboarding in New Zealand at the time. Yvette McCausland Jury, who was the um, she was a domestic uh, women's coach, went on to to coach the Silver Ferns. Um, a guy called Dave Thompson, who um, you know, was part of the New Zealand rowing crew and, and rowing was was pretty huge at that time. Um, and a guy, Dale Cheatley, who was part of New Zealand Cycling, who was also, you know, a big part. So there was team sports um, and there were also, um, you know, individual sports. And, you know, for three years, maybe half a dozen times a year, we would go on these two, three-day excursions somewhere in in New Zealand um, and we'd lock ourselves away and, and we would we would have a lot of um, scenario coaches um sort of conversations where as i said we would we would be able to once we build that trust we were able to be really confident to say hey this is a scenario that faced me these are my actions this was the result what do you reckon 
and and you get all these critical friends, I guess, who would be able to go, well, okay, you've done this, but why did you do this and not this? And, and what was your thinking around this? And we were able to really challenge each other um, in so many different ways without ever feeling vulnerable um, in terms of, you know, you go to a cricket conference or you go for a conference within your sport and ultimately you're all going for the same job. You know, you're all trying to get the same. Whereas in this group, all we're doing is we're turning up and sure we're trying to to improve ourselves, but we're also trying to help each other along the way. Um, and uh, there's a guy, Alex McKenzie, who ran the program, um, you know, ex-coach, ex you know, he's a, he's a, a doctor of coaching. He's a clinical psych or a sports psych, um, and just a really good, a really good sound human who was able to sort of bring us together and construct a program that, you know, gave us all um, support and gave us all a, you know, so, you know, brought in a whole heap of speakers from around the world um, in different areas of coaching, um, and it was a, it was an amazing three years for us um and i really drew on on that group um and people within that group to to say hey these are some of the things i'm going through what do you reckon um and they probably knew it anyway because it was pretty public at the time um and they were okay to share you know and 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 you're able to feel vulnerable within them and and say look i'm actually really struggling here you know am i doing the right thing um and yeah, that was that was probably a support network that was that was really important for me at a at a challenging time when I first took over. Sounds like an amazing support network to have around you. There'd be a lot of people listening that probably would now be thinking about creating their own group if they haven't already. But can I can I pick up a theme? There's this thing that runs through your your life, actually, Mike, which is every time you were given more responsibility, you thrived. You seem to have just stepped up and grown. And I can find two examples where the same things happen to players that you've been leading. So there's Brendan McCullum. You made him the captain. He's right. He's off now coaching England. And the other one's Glenn Maxwell. And I I know it hasn't – I'm not sure whether you agree. It hasn't been written about a lot, but there seems to be an inflection point for Glenn when he starts to come under your coaching and you, you give him more responsibility. I'm just curious if you see this thing. I mean, if so – are there any frameworks you use to determine or is there any questions or thoughts you use to determine whether this person will thrive with extra responsibility? Yeah, for me, I guess it's understanding, uh, as I said, firstly, the journey that player's gone through because, you know, if, if, if I was to give Brenda McCullum that responsibility two years earlier, for example, I don't think it would have been as successful. Um and and same with with Glenn Maxwell, you know, often you need to go through adversity or you need to go through different experiences in your life and you get to a maturity level where you go, now I'm actually ready to take on that responsibility and that extra um yeah, that extra role and accountability. And the player, I guess by conversations you have with the player, you need to know that that they're at that stage. So that if you were to to give somebody that responsibility, the chance of success is is high. It's not guaranteed, but it's high. And like, if I think Brendan, for example, um, you know, Brendan was picked for New Zealand when he was very young. He was growing up 
within the Black Caps environment. You know, he was making mistakes. He was he was learning about himself. He was building relationships with, you know, outside of cricket. You know, so you have to get to a point where the team then become where you want to spend most of your focus, you know, and, and only then can you become a good leader, I believe. Like, So as a captain, you have to you have to very much lead from the front in terms of not only do I say this, I actually genuinely believe it and I will do it myself. You know, I will, I will put aside all of my own personal agendas or goals, whatever it is, because the forefront is what the team requires from me. And therefore only then will the players go, hey, he actually means what he's saying and I want to follow him. And Brendan was at the perfect time, I felt, for that team because he had he had enough people that had seen him go through the journey and had respect for him. And he had enough people who had arrived at that time who were just going to follow him through a brick wall because he was practicing what he preached. And you could see that in the field. You know, when he said, look, we're going to put your body on the line, we're going to chase everything hard, we're going to, you know, every run is valuable, we're going to – the fielding actually shows um, – the, is, is the litmus test for this team, you know, in terms of the energy we bring in the field, that that will dictate um, what this team is about. You know, he was the first one to, and his body was knackered, but he was the first one to absolutely sprint for everything, dive, do everything he could to save one run. And all of a sudden, the, the players in the group were like, oh, wow, well, if this guy's doing it, you know, he's been around a while, look, that's the expectation for everybody. So if I'm not seen to be sprinting hard enough, even if it's going to the fence, if I'm not seen to be doing that, I will get reminded that that's not who we are. So, that, I mean, that's just one small example, but he was he was ready to be that guy, to be the guy that, that says, hey, follow me and I will be true to to this as well. And Maxie was, Maxie was the same in terms of he he thrived on on responsibility. You know, he was a, at a time now, he, he played with a huge amount of flair, but he wanted a role that not only suited his skill set, um, but also gave him some real importance in the team. You know, I, I was part of a, you know, with I was with RCB when um, Glenn was at uh, Punjab, and he'd been with Punjab for Kings Eleven or Punjab for quite a long time. And they had a, um, they had a super over. In fact, they had a double super over in Dubai the year before. And in the super over, you obviously put out three three batsmen. And he wasn't one of those three in the first. And then it was a double super over, so they had to put out another three. And he wasn't part of that group. Because he'd had a he'd had a poor year. But at that time I knew that he was out. Because and I remember talking with him and he was like, Well, at that point I realized that. They might have paid all this money for me, but they actually had no trust in giving me any responsibility at all. And even though he had had a poor year, he's still the guy that one of the guys you would put first out there because he's just that guy. Um, and I guess we identified where we could actually maximise his talent. You know, he'd been used in this finishers role in T20, which is like, you know, you get 10, 20 balls and you're supposed to smack 40 or whatever, but he's actually not that player. He's he's a player that, you know, that actually needs to construct an innings, even though the innings might end up being incredibly explosive, 
um, it's 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 against often against spin to start with. It's in the middle overs, the field. You know, he he just needed a role that suited his talent, and then and same within the field. You know, he wants to be that guy. He wants to be the guy in the hot spots. So him and Virat was like, right, you guys can fight over long on, long off. I don't mind, but you know, I want I want Maxi. I want you to be the guy who um, who can be the conduit, I guess, between Virat is out on the fence and the bowler. So you're sort of giving him those extra responsibilities and he thrived on it because he always wants to be that guy. He wants to be that guy that, that can help his team win a game. Um, and often that's misunderstood as being this, you know, petulant sort of hugely talented guy who doesn't care. You know, he, he's far from that. He's, he's a guy who, who's a huge team man who just wants to try and win games for his team. And uh, he had a great relationship with Virat, um, you know, him, AB and, and Virat to start with and then Faf afterwards, they were a, a really tight group and, and hugely passionate for RCB. And, you know, we went we went pretty close at times to to winning that first title um, and, you know, Maxi played a huge part in that. Mike, I've got a, another quote just to, to build on this, this story you're telling about developing teams. I'd like to just read the quote back to you and then, then, uh, then relay the question. You say... And every single game we go into, we try to win. But the longer you're in this game, the more you realize if you're pining for the result, then you actually forget about how you do it. You actually lose sight of the things you can control. I um, I like this idea of pining for the result. Was there a person or an event that helped form this view for you? Yeah, there was. And, and I actually did... I did read this quote back and I thought, now, why have I, how have I come up with this? And it's, it's probably twofold. Um, I've heard, I've heard players before, um, you know, when I first took over go, you know, this is a must win game. You know, we've, this is, we've got to win this one. And I've sort of, I've sort of sat there and I thought, yeah, no doubt about that. <laughs> but, you know, and, and I've talked about players, you know, they, they're going to target games. Oh, we need to target these games. Remember when I first took over um, both Otago and, and New Zealand, there was this perception you go into a world event or a big event and oh, you've got to target you got to target these games. And I'm like, you know, why would you do that? Like, because if you do that, you're, like, you're putting extra pressure on yourself to win this game and you're probably forgetting about these ones over here, which you actually could win anyway, like if you do things well. So I, I sort of put that... The back of my mind, and I dealt with that. And then it, it probably hit me when I, I first went to um, to the IPL, and I sat in I sat in meetings with um, with owners, and you know the owners were were either, you know, we hadn't you know the first team I was with um, Kings Eleven, you know, hadn't made the semi-finals for quite a long time, hadn't done, and. And all they were about was, you know, this is a this is a must win game. We've we have to win we have to win this game. And I'm like, yep. Like so so I'd sort of I'd sort of thought that okay, well I'll open it up like, okay, well, I mean, my job's to sort of, you know, how are we gonna do that? You know, try and 
work out a, a team. And they're like, well, I don't really care, but you have to win this game. This is a must-win game because we have to get these two points. If we don't get these two points, our net run rate will drop and we'll be behind this team and, and then we we have to win this game. And, and I'm like, well, you, you know, you're you're sort of extrapolating this out to a point where you're going to apply all this extra pressure, not only to me, but now you want me to then pass this on to all of the team to let them know how much of a must-win game this is. You know, is this actually going to help us win the game? And I was well aware that it, it was definitely not going to help because, you know, for players to for players to to perform under pressure um, and to win, they had to have a really clear head and they had to give themselves an opportunity to 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 show their skills as well as they could. So my job was to almost remove that, was to go, well, hang on. We know every game we go into here, whether we're playing for New Zealand or we're playing in the IPL, every game is a must win. Like we're, we're trying to win every single game, but how can we do that? And, and the last thing we're going to do is, is ramp it up. Like this is, we're targeting this game. We're going to, this is a must win game. Um, Cause it's like, I can't actually, actually ask the players to try any harder than they are doing every day. Like they are trying every day to, to be as good as they can be and to play their role for the team. Um, be really clear around their, their job description, prepare accordingly um, prepare against the opposition, understand the facilities, how are we going to, what decisions are we going to make tactically to help us win? Like that's going to help us win the game. It's not by going into a meeting and bashing my my hand out here and telling them that this is a must win. If we do that, everyone's going to clam up. You know, you might get the odd player that loves that rah-rah and go, yeah, I'm going to get in the fight. The odd player might benefit from that, but very few. Most of them benefit from really clear direction around what's the expectations from me, how am I going to prepare, what's my role, who are the bowlers I might look to target, what's going to work, what length is going to work for me bowling in this condition. These are the details that are going to help navigate to a win rather than, you know, an owner or a CEO or whatever it is come in and, and tell them how important it is. And we haven't won a trophy for X amount. This is the year. We have to win the trophy this year. Um, you know, we, we lost this game over here. We must win this one. All of that stuff is just detracting from the job. Um, and I understand that, that the people who, who say those things don't understand that. And that's, that's not their job, but my job is to take that and like be aware of it without doubt, but not pass that stress or um, or extra pressure onto a player because I, I just know it doesn't help. Your story after leaving the Black Caps and getting so 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 close to that world championship in the one day format, you. Your story takes you to High Performance New Zealand where you take on a job helping other coaches. And I'm wondering how the how the process of not teaching but supporting others helped further shape your yeah. own philosophy. Yeah, so I think what it, what it helped do is that no matter what sport you entered into, um, that 
most coaches or all coaches all have the same issues. Sure, technically, tactically, there's there's differences obviously between sports. But when you've got a group of 20 people and you've got a support staff of X, it's all the same. You've, you've got out of your 20, you'll have, you'll have three players that will soak up 90% of your time. Like they'll just need that energy. You'll have, you'll have players in your group who are quite self-sufficient. You'll have players that, that need a cuddle. You'll have players that need a bit of a rack up. You'll have players that need extra training, players that need a short, sharp. Like, like once you understand the dynamic of the types of characters you have, they're pretty much the same in every sport. Same as in a support staff structure. You've got, you've got some of your support staff that are just amazing and will fit in and do something. You'll have some that are, are trying to be the head coach. You'll have some that, um, that are potentially trying to snipe away or, or whatever behind the scenes or whatever it is. Like you, you, you always have the same, you'll have a, a CEO or a CFO or whatever that are trying to cut things from your program. You know, so you've got to try and really, um, decipher what's really important and what's not. So a lot of the challenges that we all face as head coaches are similar. So I guess when you're talking to the coaches, it's it's quite good to share that you're not actually the only one who's been through this and that, hey, here are maybe some examples of things that um, that other coaches have gone through and how they've how they've got through it because – being a high performance coach is quite, as I mentioned before, is quite a lonely existence. You know, you often think that, that you are, you are very much in isolation and you, you're the only person who's ever had to deal with these particular issues before. Um, and not only it's quite nice to know that you're not, but it's quite nice to know that, that there are ways to get through that. Um, and there are different ideas and different, methods that have worked for different people so i guess you can share different experiences with them and and they can try and find one that works within their environment um and i guess that helps shape me in terms of you know entering into other sports and entering into business is that we're just dealing with people like as coaches we are trying to maximize talent we are trying to maximise the skills of the group that we're working with, whether it be players, whether it be support staff, you know, obviously preferably both. And how can how can you as the head coach pull it all together? Um, same as in business as a CEO, same as in, um, you know, it's, it's the same in, in netball um, as it is in cricket, you know, as it is in cycling, you know, and, and you know, you once you work that out, um, then all of your learning is actually quite valuable. And, you know, it's then you can have really genuine conversations with with coaches that are going through struggles themselves. And, and you can be vulnerable. You can sort of – and when you relive some of the things you've been through, it probably reinforces the things that maybe you did well and, and the mistakes you made. And I think, as I said, being vulnerable with other coaches to say, hey, I was in this situation and I actually stuffed it up. I, I tried this and it was the last thing we needed, but but it actually helped me lead towards this. So maybe you could bypass the, the step that I did and try and find one that, that genuinely works for yours. 
Mike, you've been very generous with your time. I'm sure those dogs are dying to get out for their walk. So maybe just uh, one final question, if I could. There's many, many years left on your coaching journey. You're still, you're still relatively young. But if you, as you peer into the distance and you look look down the road, how do you hope that the people you've led describe the legacy or the impact you've had on them? Uh, I guess, a, yeah, a good sign for me is that the players or the people you've worked with um, want to re-engage with you, <laughs> you know, and that sounds simple, but, you know, you know, there are many people that um, we've dealt with in the past which, you know, stay clear of them or they, or they talk Ill, Ill of somebody. Um, and I guess... Yeah, what I want is to people to go, hey, I really love that environment. He created a great environment for us to work in um, and he really helped me become a better player and probably a better person. And I guess those are things that are, are really important to me. So, um, yeah, those those are probably things that I find, that I would find satisfying that if, if somebody would say, hey, yeah, definitely not only re-employ him, but I'd really want to be part of that team again and, and really enjoy my time. Mike, it's been wonderful chatting with you and learning a little bit more about your story. I think there's some powerful, powerful ideas in there around the use of silence and questions to help people unlock their own potential. Um, And I thank you very much for agreeing to spend an hour with us today. Yeah, no, I I really enjoyed it actually, Paul. It's, um, as I said, often you don't think about your own journey very often. Occasionally you do a podcast like this and um, you know, your questions were, were probing in terms of making me relive, you know, some of the things that I've been through. And um, as I said, I think that helps, yeah, helps you grow as a coach too and, and probably reinforce why you do things. So, uh, yeah, thoroughly enjoyed it and, uh, yeah, wish you well with your podcast. Thanks, Mike. Hi, everyone. You have been listening to the great coach, Mike Hessen. I hope you got a lot out of Mike's reflections and found a few ideas that you can bring to your own dinner table, locker room or work table for discussion. When I listened back, some of the other key highlights for me were Mike's view that being a head coach can be a lonely existence, but there are peers that you can lean on to help you work through the isolation. How coaching in the IPL has taught him that for players to perform under pressure, they must have a clear head and his role as the coach is to remove the distractions that prevent this from happening. And the way he talks about thriving himself as he was given more responsibility, and in turn, how he has seen the same thing happen with Brendan McCullum and Glenn Maxwell. I hope you enjoyed it as much as we did. And just before we go, if you have any feedback, then please let us know. Just like Ben Ryan, who, after listening to our episode with Cody Royal, said... I felt compelled to laud the interview with Cody, incredibly insightful and somewhat frightening to hear of the short average tenure of elite coaches in the English Premier League. Thanks, Ben. We love the interaction with the people around the world who listen. And so if you have any feedback or comments, please let us know. And if they're positive ones, then please let your friends and family know too. All the details on how to connect with us are in the show notes or on our website, thegreatcoachespodcast.com.
ACAST powers the world's best podcasts. Here's a show that we recommend. The Real Housewives is a guilty pleasure for most, but if you're looking to not feel guilty about that pleasure, tune in to Everything Iconic with me, Danny Pellegrino, where I break down all the messy moments and behind-the-scenes antics of Bravo's popular franchise. And on Everything Iconic, I also interview celebrity guests like Kelly Ripa, Kiki Palmer, Drew Barrymore, Cameron Diaz, and more about their guilty pleasures, their past work, and so much more. So if you're pop culture obsessed and find yourself watching way too much reality TV like me, tune in to Everything Iconic with Danny Pellegrino, wherever you listen to podcasts. ACAST helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts everywhere. ACAST.com.